This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Private philanthropy contributes over $2 billion a year to American education. Most of those dollars go directly to school districts, and they seem to have only a marginal effect on what schools do and how they do it. But some philanthropists give scholarship money to low-income students and families who wish to send their children to private schools, and they advocate for the use of state dollars to be used in the same way. These philanthropists have helped fuel the school choice movement across the country. And I have one of these philanthropists, Bill Oberndorf, with me on the Education Exchange today. Just this past month, Bill Oberndorf was named the Simon DeVos Philanthropist of the Year by Philanthropy Roundtable. Mr. Oberndorf is a wealthy man, but his Life is marked by trauma, such as many ordinary people endure. His father died when he was in sixth grade, and the family had to make a move back to Ohio. Fortunately, his grandparents had saved money for their grandchildren's education, and young Bill was able to attend university school, a private school that gave him the education he needed to become a history major at Williams College, earn a Stanford MBA, and eventually to launch a multi-billion dollar investment firm in San Francisco. Remembering the importance of his early schooling, Bill Oberndorf has committed time, energy, and resources to expanding opportunities for children from disadvantaged background. He chairs the American Federation for Children, which advocates for school choice. Bill, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, Bill, congratulations on that uh, wonderful award. Uh, let me ask you, why did you choose, I've given a hint here, but uh, maybe I'm wrong. Why did you decide to concentrate some of your giving on disadvantaged children going to private school, giving them that opportunity? Well, I felt, Paul, just so extremely fortunate um, that I was able to attend um, uh, a wonderful private school in, um, in Cleveland. Um, and I was only able to do that because my grandparents, as you mentioned, set aside and saved money. Otherwise, my, my brothers and myself would not have been able to to have that kind of education. And I, I just felt that um, every kid um, who uh, wants to work hard in school, whose parents want something better for them, should have access to a, a, a the kind of education and quality of an education that best fits the needs of that, uh, of, of that uh, child or student. So I've, I felt this is just something that really is the civil rights issue of our time. Well, so this idea was first proposed by Milton Friedman back in the 1950s. And 70 years later, we have only a few school voucher programs that are sponsored by governments or state governments or local governments. <clears throat> I know you've advocated for the expansion of these programs over the decades, uh, but why has it been so difficult to build the necessary public support for something that seems so sensible? Well, it has been a long road. Um, and uh, I remember talking to Milton Friedman shortly before he died about this. 
And he actually said, well, we're just about right on schedule. He said it takes decades for ideas to take root before they really could flourish. So Milton was uh, not uh, deterred. And, uh, you know, I will say that the opposition uh, uh, has been the teachers unions. Um, and uh, they are such a incredibly uh, powerful force and funding source uh, for the Democrat party. Uh, that this has really created uh, major obstacles along the way. But the good news is that actually now there are uh, private school choice programs in 32 states. Those 32 states also have charter school programs. And uh, in uh, uh, 48 out of 50 states, there's at least a charter program. So actually a, a considerable amount of progress has been made. Well, yes, that's certainly true. There has been, there has been progress, uh, but it seemed like things were stalling out, uh, you know, in 2018, uh, it looked like there was an election in Massachusetts where they had charter schools on the ballot and, and it went down even though charter schools in Massachusetts seemed to be doing so very well. And there just seemed to be uh, divisions within the school choice movement and the, the energy seemed to be disappearing. So we were talking about before the pandemic, but you know, as we were in this, uh, what in retrospect seems like the long distance past, how were you assessing the state of school choice at that point in time? Well, there have been periods that have been uh, more challenging than others. Uh, and I think for uh, the charter school um, uh, movement, if you will, they had scaled up to around 3 million students so suddenly they, for the first time, were feeling the kind of opposition from the unions that the private school choice movement uh, had felt all along. And they thought they could be shielded from that, but they weren't any longer being shielded. So this actually did create, and I think, a lull. Uh, and uh, that was problematic. Um, I do think that subsequent to that time, some important things have happened, which have helped to change the trajectory overall of, of, of the advocacy and implementation of private and charter school choice. Well, and what's happened since is, of course, the COVID pandemic and uh, shutting down of schools uh, uh, in, in states across the country and, and, and the private schools remaining open in many places where the where district schools had been just completely shuttered. So um, do you think that's critical to what seems to be happening today? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, the tide went out uh, because of COVID. And many people in the country who never had been touched before by the impact of the unions suddenly felt that impact. Uh, the other thing that happened is that uh, because of uh, so much online education going on, they actually saw for the first time the quality of the teaching 
of what was going on in their kids' classrooms, and they didn't like what they saw. So this was a real eye-opener, and uh, it has caused the, uh, the acceptance and popularity of uh, education choice to skyrocket to where now 85% of people in the country are favorable to, uh, to education choice. Well, there's been a lot of movement too. At, at least at, we don't know the full facts, but <clears throat> last uh, school year, it seemed as if there were a lot of people who were moving away from the uh, standard district run school to either the private sector, which began to recover some of the losses it had experienced previously, uh, the charter schools, which report now uh, a, a pretty sizable increase in enrollment, uh, and homeschooling has sort of exploded on us. It may have doubled in size. So um, is, this, is this people voting with their feet on the ground against what was happening during the pandemic? Oh, uh, absolutely. And uh, what we do at the American Federation for Children is, uh, which is now the largest uh, uh, school choice organization in the country, uh, we, um, we start with uh, 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 funding uh, state legislative races um, uh, directly uh, backing candidates. So you referenced the initiative, ballot initiative uh, losing in Massachusetts, there has never been a ballot initiative that's ever uh, passed and won in the country ever uh, because it's too easy to knock them off. But by looking at states where we feel that over a three to five year period, we can really change uh, the, the legislative composition uh, and uh, to be favorable to choice and having a governor who is receptive to signing such legislation. What resulted in 2020 is uh, we, uh, we backed um, 390 different state legislators and we won 337 of those seats in 2020. So we had an extremely high win rate. They were concentrated in 13 states. And what resulted this year was the passage of 150,000 new, permanently new seats funded at just about $6,000 a piece. So uh, almost $900 million of government money. Now, and, and in addition to that, you had a big increase in the number of kids being homeschooled, and then you had an increase in charters. Uh, so this on the margin uh, has, is having a big political influence too, by the way, in terms of how people vote once the, their children are actually benefiting from these programs. So... What do you see as the driver here? Is it all this groundwork that was being done by the American Federation of Children? Or was it just the COVID crash, which highlighted the issue? What, I know that both are on the table here, but what's the more important <clears throat> to coincide to make it all happen? Well, first of all, it's not the American Federation for Children just working alone. Uh, we work very closely with our in-state partners in any state that we go into. So it is really a very collaborative uh, approach. 
uh, that we take. And each state's different. So no national organization can just kind of parachute in to a particular state. So we're very sensitive to that. But I think it was a combination and a culmination, if you will, of a lot of frustration that parents have had over the years. Uh, and uh, uh, particularly uh, the kind of parents we try and focus on and help, which are low income parents. And um, this is uh, changing how they are voting on things at the ballot box. Um, and uh, I had a very interesting conversation with uh, Governor Ducey from Arizona this summer. And uh, uh, Doug told me he got 44% uh, of the Hispanic vote the last time he ran. And he said, that's only because of this issue. That's the only reason why I got that kind of percentage. And then uh, Governor DeSantis, um, uh, uh, when his uh, opponent, uh, Mayor Gillum, said, uh, we're going to end the school choice programs in Florida. Uh, and Mayor Gillum was a very, uh, very articulate uh, African-American candidate. Uh, DeSantis ended up getting 18% uh, of the black female vote. That was 70,000 votes and he won by 30,000 votes. So this is changing outcomes with people who are simply tired of seeing what's happening to their children who are subject to sending their kids to schools that none of us would ever let our kids go to. So are these stories traveling from state to state? Is this, are, are political leaders talking to one another? Is this what's sort of moving the conversation is that, you know, over there, they're making a move and we've got to do something similar here. Yeah, I really think it's finally uh, gaining uh, traction in a way that we've never seen before, Paul. Um, and uh, we're seeing, uh, we think this next cycle, we will have uh, 550 different state legislative races that we can uh, invest in. Uh, if we are able to raise the funds to be able to do so. Uh, and governors are really understanding the implications of this. And minority um, politicians are also understanding this is really good for their constituents. So we don't view this as a Republican issue, a Democrat issue. Uh, and fortunately, you know, about 20% of the money that we give out every year to back candidates goes to Democrat candidates. We'd like it to be a lot higher than that. But uh, yes, I do think the, uh, this is gaining acceptance. And I also think uh, in addition to COVID, uh, with what happened in the wake of George Floyd and the riots and what happened in the summer of 2020, you cannot have a real conversation about systemic racism if you do not talk about K through 12 and the outcomes for these kids. Uh, it, is, um, it is what's holding kids back, minority kids in this country, and it's just an inconvenient truth if you do not talk about this I don't think we are going to really be able to make substantial progress moving forward. Well, the charter school movement seems to have had, at least prior to COVID, 
an adverse effect on enrollments in the private sector. We've seen a steady decline in the number of students uh, attending private schools for over a decade. And this may be turning around now, but it was a very uh, long trend and it coincided with the growth of the charter schools. And so I'm wondering if there, can the school choice movement hold together when there is this competition between these two uh, sides to it? Well, we think competition is a really good thing. Uh, and students and families can move to where they think uh, they are getting the best education for their kids. One of the things we have been working on, though, is to uh, bring the dollar amounts for private school choice to parity with charter schools so that they're on a level playing field in terms of funding. Uh, they have been at a meaningful uh, discount, if you will, and, uh, and, and we're finding if they get, we get the dollar amounts at parity, then uh, that does really help the, uh, the private school sector where uh, pre-COVID, we had uh, approximately 1.2 million empty school seats of schools still operating in modest tuition schools in the United States. So a lot of those are uh, Catholic school seats um, in the Midwest, they're Lutheran school seats, uh, but uh, that's where supply is. And, and, and if we can get the dollar amounts up and expand the size of these programs, we can fill every one of those seats. Well, are you seeing any signs that those seats are filling up, that the private sector is regaining some of the losses that, it's, uh, that, that I referred to? Uh, we, we know in states where we have really robust programs like Florida, um, there, uh, for example, in Miami-Dade, there have really not been any Catholic school closures in recent years. In fact, all the seats are full. So yes, that can happen where you're funded uh, at a high enough level. And, uh, and it, once these schools are closed, it's very hard to get them to reopen. So it's a very high priority of ours to take the average uh, amount of, uh, per student of the, uh, of the scholarship, as we call them, up. And so we've actually gone over the last four years from like 4,500 to about $6,000. And people may think that's such a small amount of money. How can that matter? But these, uh, these inner city schools charge between five dollars and $8,000 a year. So we're getting there, but we still have work to do on that front. Well, there is the Louisiana voucher program that a lot of the critics uh, point to as showing that uh, private schools are not as good as the uh, ones run by school districts. And uh, you can't just dismiss that study in Louisiana because it's done by Pat Wolf, who's been always friendly to, uh, or at least fair to the uh, charter school, private school sectors. Uh, so how do you respond to the results of that study? Uh, I am not um, familiar with that study, uh, Paul, myself, uh, but I would say that uh, Louisiana has been a particularly difficult state uh, to work in because the program, it, the private school choice program is quite small there. 
Uh, and the governor has vetoed every improvement we've tried to make in the programs. So it's very difficult with this governor in Louisiana to actually do things like bring tuition up to parity and so on and so forth. And, and, and the charter schools are, are, have really done well there too, which is terrific. And we're, we, we're not, we're, we are, we embrace all forms of choice at AFC charters, vouchers, homeschooling, we embrace it all. So, uh, but I think it's been politically a, a very uh, challenging state to work in from a private school choice perspective. Well, we have right now a gubernatorial race in Virginia that's going down to the wire. Uh, a, 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 a political novice by the name of Glenn Youngkin. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He's a new, new newbie on the scene. Uh, he's running neck and neck with Terry McAuliffe, a, a former governor of the state. So. Uh, this is a big surprise and education is turning out to be an interesting issue. So what are you learning from Virginia? Well, I think Terry McAuliffe uh, made a massive uh, mistake when he said parents shouldn't have a say in what's going on in their children's education. Uh, and uh, it's almost as bad as what Mayor Gillum said in Florida. Uh, and who knows better about their children's education than parents? Nobody. So I think uh, he, it was an unforced error on Terry McCall's part. And he's running against somebody uh, who's never been in public life before, but who is a very smart, very able, very astute person. Uh, and, um, I, you know, it's, it's great that it's actually getting the kind of press and, and, and play that it, that it is. And uh, at the end of the day, it could be the issue that causes uh, Terry McAuliffe to lose. Well, so uh, what is, uh, is school choice one of the issues specifically, or is it just education in a general way? Uh, I think it's parents who, after seeing what went on, even in the affluent suburbs like Fairfax County, and they couldn't get their act together, even with an online program. Uh, and um, uh, this is an affluent uh, part of Virginia. And you compare that with uh, what Ava Moskowitz did in New York City at her success academies, where within weeks, she had her whole system up and operating. Uh, 20,000 minority kids, across 50 schools and uh, did a remarkable job of educating her kids. And what she did is, it's just simple, but it's brilliant. Uh, she, uh, for, every, uh, for every fifth grader math uh, student, she picked her very best teacher in the whole system to teach fifth grade math. For every uh, sixth grade English teacher, she picked her best English teacher. And then all the other uh, teachers supported that. And there was attendance uh, and there were tests. And that went on by class each day. So there is not a public school in the United States of America that could system that could not have done what she did with poor minority kids in New York City. It's a disgrace what happened. And when you think, what if nurses had said, we just aren't showing up for a year? 
What if people said, Amazon people said, we're not going to deliver anything to anybody for a year? Well, a lot of teachers, they just didn't show up for a year. And I think that has caused uh, people to be really rightfully uh, upset uh, and, um, and disturbed by what's going on in uh, traditional public school education in the country. Well, do you see any attenuation of union influence as a result of these shifts that are taking place? Uh, well, I think what we've seen happen um, in let's take uh, let's take Miami Dade is a is a district um, where today uh, uh, in Miami Dade um, seven and a half percent of the children go to private schools with state money, seventeen and a half percent go to uh, charter schools. 40% go to enriched traditional public schools with internet things like the International Baccalaureate Program. And the balance, which is 35%, they go to their neighborhood assigned schools. Miami-Dade is the number one performing school district in the United States of America today because uh, they decided to embrace choice, that it lifts all boats and basically infused the traditional public schools with very high quality curriculum. And the, and the outcomes are terrific. And we all know that is a racially, economically very complex uh, district. Well, Alberto Carballo uh, is a member of my advisory committee and I have nothing but the highest admiration for what he's down, down there. But of course, how many people with his background, his talent are there in American education? Uh, there aren't enough, that's for sure. And uh, superintendents tend to be kind of revolving doors. Uh, they don't stay very long. Uh, the average tenure is like three years, and I think he's on his 13th year now. I think so, that's it, yeah. Something yeah, like that. 14, yeah. Yeah, so, so there, there's, uh, there's a big difference there, but that is the kind of superintendent we need to have superintendents like that. But they also have to feel that they have the latitude and room to operate. Uh, and if they do, I think we will be having a much more successful group of superintendents uh, across the country and people will become attracted um, to being superintendents who are really smart, qualified people. It's just they aren't given much room to really be able to do what needs to be done. Well, uh, Bill, uh, you are a history major. I, I learned that when I read your bio. Uh, and American history has all of a sudden become a highly controversial topic in American education. The New York Times is peddling a journalistic account of American history that says the defining moment was not 1775 in Boston, but rather 1619 in Virginia when a slave ship arrived. Uh, what's your view of what's going on in the study of history in American education? Well, Paul, I, I think it's a bigger kind of topic than obviously, and I know you do too, than just, uh, than just history. And um, I think we 
are seeing a, um, a line drawn more deeply and visibly in education between what are conservative institutions and what are not conservative institutions. Uh, and uh, I don't think we are seeing the kind of leadership we need to see um, uh, amongst uh, the presidents of these uh, colleges and universities across the country to really um, adhere to uh, the facts of history rather than it all becoming interpretive. Well, I, I couldn't agree more with you. Uh, I attended an event at one of the great universities of the United States. I will, I will be generous and not mention the name, but it is a university that you know well, Bill. And at this university, the provost introduced the journalist uh, who wrote this uh, 1619 project with such, um, with such uh, praise and uh, with such deference that um, given the quality of the work, I was just totally astounded. And so that does sort of cast doubt on the wisdom of people at the very highest levels of our universities. Uh, yes, and um, I think there, you know, um, you really have to admire what's happened and it started at the University of Chicago with the uh, Chicago Statement. And there are now 60 different um, institutions that have signed that, um, making very clear um, that uh, differences of views and opinions um, uh, are part of the ethos of the University of Chicago even if there is disagreement uh, around those, that, uh, that those views should be heard. Uh, and uh, there just isn't enough of that, uh, that there are only 60 institutions that have signed that, I think uh, speaks to the real problems and, and trouble uh, a higher education is. And, and this also goes into uh, uh, high schools uh, and uh day schools and boarding schools all across the country. Well, is this anything the school choice movement can address? Does, it, does school choice give any leverage on this other topic? The leverage that it gives, Paul, is for parents who don't like what's going on in the schools that their kids are assigned to attend, they can leave. And uh, that is the leverage of school choice. And there are uh, a lot of particularly um, Hispanic families and black families today um, who um, are very traditional in their beliefs and they don't like uh, their kids being taught a lot of wokey stuff. And they have the opportunity now to leave. Um, it, it, it's a really surprise to me uh, uh, how well Donald Trump did with minorities, given all the stuff he said, uh, that 19% of black males voted for who voted, voted for Donald Trump, 9% of black females, 36% of, uh, of Hispanic males, 33% of Hispanic females. 
I, these numbers are absolutely shocking to me, but they should be really shocking to Democrats too, because saying a lot of these folks are saying we've had enough and school choice allows them to take their kids where they want them to be. We could talk about this all afternoon and into the evening, but uh, thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange uh, today, uh, Bill. Thank, thank you, Paul. And I just hope everybody listening will look at this as an urgent, critical issue for the country, because if we don't have an educated populace, we really can't have a democracy. I've been speaking with Bill Obernor, chair of the American Federation of Children, or for children, I should say, who was named Philanthropist of the Year by the Philanthropy Roundtable, a national association of philanthropists. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.